that God is good. Yes, amen. Well, that's it. I was going to do that, but that's so cliche, that, that little thing. But God is good, eh? And I just wanted to, I just, as I was, um, as we were worshipping this morning and thinking about this message this morning, there were some clear words that God gave in terms of the direction that He's taking us this morning. But I was just so aware of God's goodness to us. Just how good and faithful God is. And just how thankful we can be for what Jesus has done for us. You know, we, we so often, we move almost um, in a way, away from the cross sometimes, and we forget actually what Jesus has paid for. What he has, that He has paid for all of our sin. And that we are free and forgiven before God. And we forget what a huge thing that is. How massive it is that, that we have this freedom. You know, even in the Old Covenant, um, in that time, there was an element of freedom, but it was a yearly reminder every time to bring sacrifices. There was such an awareness of your sin and your guilt before yeah. God all the time. And yet when we come together to worship and we come together as a church, we come with a freedom. Yeah. Our conscience has been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Yeah. And that we have nothing that hinders us from coming into the presence of God yeah. and to enjoy God's goodness. And I think sometimes we forget that um, and we need to be reminded of that. And I really believe God wants to touch on that a little bit this morning. And there was a few words. Tony, this morning, as he started us off, he spoke about the, the household of God. Yeah. And so that was confirmation for me of what God is speaking about this morning. And then there was another word, or two words that came during the worship. The one was about the, the trumpet being sounded. God saying, he's preparing to, to do great things. I can't exactly remember the word, but there was a sort of a battle cry. And also that word of, the, of Jesus on the white horse riding in. And so that gave me a lot of clarity about what God is saying this morning, because I believe the message this morning is a preparation message. It's a message about preparing ourselves in terms of being in step and tune with what God is doing, He's already doing, but also to, to step into it, to be in line with Him in terms of what He is going to do um, in our church, in and through the church, Bay City Church, in our families, in our marriages, and in our families, and, and with us as individuals. And so we're going to look at the book of James, and we're going to look at two passages. But um, my, my title for the message this morning is The Three Houses of Unity. The Three Houses of Unity. And that's what I want to speak about this morning. So we'll come back to that. I'll explain that in a minute. But let's read um, from James chapter 1. Um, I had the privilege of preaching on the passage just before this. So I'm picking up from James chapter 1 verse 5. I'm going to read a few verses, but I'm really just looking at one word there. And then we're going to jump to chapter 4 where um, James goes into a little bit more detail around this specific word that he uses. So in James chapter 1 verse 5, he says this. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him, but you must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So take note of that word, a double-minded man. That word is a Greek word that only is found in the book of James, only in these two passages that we're going to look at. And it's an unusual word. It, it doesn't really, the word itself in its, in its makeup is not speaking about the mind as such. It comes from the root word psyche, which speaks about our life. So it's a double life person that he's talking about here. But it's, the best way to describe that is to say that someone has got two ways of thinking about life. He's, one foot is going in this direction, another foot is going in another direction. Yeah. 
And James is saying here that God is able to give, to provide everything we need. Everything we need. And we can ask Him for anything that we need and He will provide it. The problem is, though, that if we are divided in ourselves about what it is we're asking God for, we will not receive anything from Him. So that's the first passage. And then we go to James. So that's just speaking about us as individuals as we come before the Lord and, and ask Him. But now we jump to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10. So I'm going to read all 10 of those verses and then we will refer back to them. So if you want to follow with me. Listen to the question that James asks. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship there we go. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that word again. Be miserable, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So just those passages of scripture um, speaking about this word being double-minded. What does it mean to be double-minded? What does that look like? And the first passage is looking really at individually, myself, in my own person, if I'm divided in myself, what will the effect be upon my relationship with God, in my growth, in my, in my discipleship process, when I'm really needing things, especially something like wisdom, I won't actually receive what I need because within myself, I'm not actually sure of what I'm asking God for. There's a division within myself. And then here in James, if we look at the beginning of this passage, it asks this question, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Who do you think he's addressing here? Is he addressing the world? No. Who's he addressing? The church, the household of God that Tony was speaking about this morning. He's addressing us. The household of God. And he says, in the church there comes quarrels and conflicts because also of this divided nature that can exist within us. You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. I don't think there was anyone in the church in Jerusalem where James was who actually killed each other um, because they, they had a fight. I don't know if... I mean, I've, I was a Baptist. Um, I'm still a Baptist in terms of my heritage. And I've, I've heard of some rough church meetings um, in Baptist circles. So if you know how the Baptist system works, Baptists get around in a congregation and they, they decide together about everything. And everyone who's a member has a say. So you can imagine some of those meetings sometimes get a bit wild. Um, 
And I, I've heard stories of people punching each other in Baptist church meetings. Errol's nodding his head. Yeah. Maybe he did that as... Were you punched by someone? I was in the Baptist church as Yes, well. as well. So you know this is the story. But you didn't punch anybody. Okay. So I've, I've, I've heard... I have heard... Um, of that happening in the Baptist church. And I'm sure it's maybe happened in other churches. You know, we, we are um, fallen human beings. But that's not what he's saying. I don't think he means that they were actually killing each other. But there was such a depth of conflict that was happening in the church and can happen in the church that, and I like this word, this is the way we often talk about it, is we can try to assassinate each other. Yeah. Character assassination, you've heard that term? We try, we say, we use our words against one another because we are opposed to one another to try and destroy the other. And that can take place in the church. And that's what James is speaking about. And so that's speaking at another, another level of what it looks like when there is division. So this morning I want to look at the, the three houses of unity. The three houses of unity. The first is the individual. Sorry ladies, I picked a man there. Um, it can be a, a woman as well. It's just to depict a person. I couldn't find a... a it looks like a man, I think. Yeah. I couldn't find a unisex one. So, I don't want to discriminate. Uh, it's supposed to just depict the individual. The first house of unity, what does the Bible say? It says, you individually are a temple, a house of God. The Spirit of God comes and dwells within each one of us. And James picks that up and he says, when you become divided in yourself, it actually stirs up incredible jealousy within God because God loves you and He loves the Spirit that He's made to live within you and He desires that the Spirit that is within you only has affection for Him. Only has affection for Him. Because the moment God puts His Spirit in a Christian, what God is doing is He's putting a ring on our finger. And that ring symbolizes that you are His. Yes. So, up until the day that Roxy and I got married, we were engaged and she had a ring on her finger, but it, you know, we didn't exchange rings formally. And, and up until that day, she could have decided, you know what, that's it, I'm, I'm not interested in this and I'm not going through with it. But the moment that she made those commitments, she was mine. Yeah. That was it. And I don't mean that in a misogynistic way. I mean, I mean that I knew from that moment and she knew from that moment that my affection is only hers and her affection is only mine. And if I were to see her give affection to someone else, what would it stir up in me? Jealousy. Would that be wrong to be jealous? That would be completely righteous jealousy. So God is righteous in His jealousy when He sees that my heart is lured away by something or someone else. It stirs up, it burns within God a jealousy for our affection. And that's in the first person, the unity within myself. And then there's unity within the home, unity within the family. Especially in the marriage, um, but also in the greater family. It's it's harder in family, um, but especially in marriage. There's a great opportunity for unity to take place in, in family. And then there's unity within the church, within the household of God. And the reason I feel this morning God is saying this is a message about um, preparation is that it's a powerful thing when the people of God walk and live and breathe in unity. Yes. It's an incredibly powerful thing that begins to happen. And so to me the sense I got this morning of what Jesus is saying is He's rising up. He's rising up on His mission and He's busy doing what He's purpose to do and He's 
fulfilling that calling, that purpose that he has, is he's actually calling people to join with him. Yeah. People who are completely devoted to the same purpose that he has. People who are very in tune with God's purposes and are walking and running together. Turn with me for a moment to Philippians. I'm going, I didn't put all the scriptures up there this morning because I'm not sure yet which scriptures we're going to look at and which we're not. So um, bear with me in that. Philippians chapter 2. You might know this verse. It's quite a well-known verse from, from verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Intent on one purpose. Whose purpose is that? Is it my purpose? Is it Andy's purpose? Who gets to decide whose purpose it is? Who's the head of the church? It's Jesus. It's His purpose. Remember what Jesus said when He was driving out demons and people were challenging Him and saying, You are driving out demons by the power of Satan. And He, showed, he said to them, That's impossible because a house divided itself will never be able to stand. And He goes on to say, If anyone isn't with me, gathering with me, then you are scattering. If we are not united to the purpose of Christ then we are against Him. There's only one way or the other. You can't be half united with the purpose of Christ. Have you ever seen what happens to a soldier in a battlefield when he has to face the enemy and it's a life or death situation and he has to, his, his commander is saying to him, you need to advance, you need to move forward because we need to push forward in order to destroy the enemy. And if that soldier has any doubt in his mind about where his allegiance is, what is going to happen? He's going to go back. He's not going to follow through. You see, we can't say, I kind of am on board with the things of Christ, but I'm kind of not. Because when the crunch comes, we will run away. We will go in a different direction. There's no compromise on this. Paul says that if we have this mind, if we have experienced the love of God, the love of Christ, then we need to be united together in this one purpose. And so, I'm going to speak about these three houses. I'm going to touch on all of them at different times. Um, because I want to look at it in the context of what James is saying. And so the first point I want to make this morning is, don't doubt God's goodness. James chapter 1 and verse... I forget what the verse is there. Let's read it again. It says, but you must ask, verse 6. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is a double-minded man. That's the point he's making. The one who doubts is double-minded. So the first thing we need to do is we must not doubt God's goodness. We have to know that God is good and that every intention that he has for us is good. Now, I believe that really there's only one way that we become double-minded. It's when our faith is not fully on God. When we don't fully have faith in God, our faith is sort of turned away somewhere into something else. Now that can happen through the enemy planting seeds of 
fear or doubt or confusion. That can happen. We can come into a situation, we can be faced with a situation, and the enemy can come and sow seeds of doubt and confusion and fear, and so we can be lured away into a different way of thinking. We can begin to say, well, if God really does care about me, have you ever said that? Then He will. And so my mind is, is, is turned. I'm no, now I'm no longer sure if God really is good, and if God really cares about me. The other way is that we can allow sin to linger in our lives. We can allow sin to remain in our lives and not want to pay attention to that sin. And that sin will breed in us an unbelief in that area of our lives regarding God. And we become double-minded. So the first thing we need to do is we need to put away this idea in our minds that God is not good, that God is not trustworthy. That has come to us maybe through our experiences, maybe through things that you've experienced in the past. We actually, it was a powerful word that Errol and Tracy gave to us recently that really resonated with us in terms of what God is doing. And the word was something to this effect. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, because you probably remember it better than I do. But I remember that what it meant to me was that it's not going to be the same way that it was before. You've come this way before, and, it's, and you've made this mistake, or it's, this is what's happened. And you know what happens in our minds is if we've come that way, then we think every single time I'm going to go this way, the same thing's going to happen. I'm going to fall in the same thing or the same problem's going to arise. And that's how the enemy gets hold of our minds to doubt God. To begin to think that wherever God is leading you, He is not able to actually bring it through for you. He's not able to actually accomplish what He has purposed because in the past this has happened or that has happened. And we begin to doubt God's goodness. We begin to doubt that God cares about us. It was so profound this morning that we sang that song. In fact, two songs we sang this morning were about God's goodness. Yeah. And I really believe God wants us to, to settle this with Him this morning. To say, Lord, you know what? I don't understand what's happened. I don't understand this situation or that situation. I don't understand what happened over there. I'm not even sure exactly how that played out or how it still is playing out. Maybe this is something still in your life that's busy playing out. But regardless of all of that, Lord, I do not doubt that you are good. Yeah. I settle in my heart that you are good and that I can ask you for what I need because you are good. The reason I ask God, the reason I come to God and ask Him what I need in my time of need is not because I deserve it, not because I've earned it, but because of God's grace and His goodness. That's the only basis on which I come to God to ask. And I receive from Him on that basis. If I come thinking that I'm going to receive from God today because I've done something better, then it's my own dead works. So we must settle this in our hearts. We must ask without doubting that God is able to provide, and He provides for those whom He loves. Okay, the second point that I think really speaks into the two, the second two houses is we need to live open-handed. We need to be open-handed in the way that we live. James goes on to say, you do not receive... In chapter 4, you do not receive, you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so you may spend it on your pleasures. And if you listen to the flow of the argument that James is making in this passage, he's talking about these quarrels that exist within the church. And he, he defines it and he, he gives us a, a few steps in the process. He says these, these quarrels 
And the reason for the quarrels are that inside of you as an individual, there's a tension that is wrestling within you. And then it starts to manifest itself in the way that you treat other people in the church. Because I'm wanting one thing and another person is wanting another thing. In the middle there, maybe, we both want the things of God. We both do want to serve God and worship Jesus and to lift Him up. But on the side here, I actually have a slightly different motive that's, that's turning and twisting that idea to this direction. And over here, someone else has got a slightly different motive. And so we are not finding each other. We're actually fighting with each other. We're actually in conflict with one another. And we are envious and we cannot obtain. And we fight and we quarrel because we do not ask. And when we ask, we don't receive because we ask with wrong motives. And this is such a powerful thing. And that's why I say let's live open-handed with the things that we expect to receive. Because... If I am absolutely convinced and completely set my identity on God has said that I'm going to receive X, Y, and Z. If that's what it's all about. The thing is with, with me as an individual, with my own heart and my own frailties, my own sins, I can never be absolutely sure that my motives are pure. I can never be absolutely sure that my motives are completely pure. There might always be some aspect of me that is actually wanting something, and I believe it's a godly thing that I'm wanting, but I'm wanting it and my motive is slightly twisted. And when I bring that into a community with other people who have a similar motive, there's going to be a, a wrestling that happens around the things that I desire. I think it's a powerful picture of, of how we can relate to one another, especially in marriage. So we look at that second house, how we can be united in marriage. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, he says that, Again I say to you, that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it shall be done for them and by my Father who is in heaven. If two of us can agree on anything on earth, it will be done for us by our Father in heaven. I often quote this scripture when I'm preaching at a wedding. Because I always encourage people when they get married that your marriage is one of the greatest potential forces for good in the world. Yeah. So married couples, as you sit here, I'm speaking to you now. Your marriage is one of the greatest potential forces for good in the world because of this scripture. Because of this scripture. Yeah. Because in your marriage, you are forced to live with the other person. Sometimes you don't want to. Sometimes it might seem easier to just do your own thing. And sometimes people do that. And they live in the same house, but they actually live separate lives. Yeah. But if you are united to one another in your marriage, you realize something very quickly, that either we are completely united with one another, or it's sometimes better to just do our own thing. Have you ever noticed that? Either we come directly in an agreement with one another, and we can walk together with one another, or it might be better for us to just have our own separate lives. And you see, unfortunately, people live that way sometimes. He has his thing, and she has her thing. And they just live their lives. But here's the thing. That when you are in agreement with another person, when you take the time, when you make the effort to come into agreement with another person, what it will reveal, without a doubt, is it will reveal your false motives. Because I cannot be in full agreement with another believer who is in full agreement with God and have false motives. It will immediately be revealed. 
Because if we try and agree together, even if we're talking about the same thing, if I have another motive for why I want that thing, it'll be revealed. Because we will not be able to come into full agreement until we both are set only on what Jesus wants. As long as there's still a little bit of what I want or a little bit of what she wants, we will not be able to come into full agreement. However, if we do, wow, what power? What does it say in that scripture? If two can agree about anything on this earth, God will do it. God will do it. So I want to encourage you, uh, married couples, to make every effort to be united to one another. The only way I find that you can do this consistently, and we're not always consistent in doing this, but I've, I, every time we do, I find that this is the case, is to, to speak openly together and to pray together. It's the only way to come into unity with anybody. To speak openly and to pray together. Because as we pray, even if I come into that time of prayer, even with my own motives and my own thinking, as we pray, as the Spirit of God begins to stir up, it very quickly He directs us and says, you know what, these things that you think is what it's all about, that's not really what it's about. It's about me. And my focus is drawn back to, to the center point, which is on Christ. And we can agree together, we can pray together in the power of the Spirit, because we're in agreement. There's such power in that. There's such power in those relationships. We can do this with anyone, but I really believe that God has given us marriage as the greatest tool in which to, to exercise this power. To come into this kind of agreement. And to see things change in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families. I want to ask you, couples who are here, this might be difficult for you, maybe you don't do this regularly, but I want to ask you, how often do you come into agreement with one another? And I, I take that as a challenge for myself, because there are times, there are seasons in which God says to, to me and to us, we need to do this every day, and we don't, we're not always faithful. Every night, take time to come into agreement. Maybe you need to break bread together, so that you can focus your attention again on why it is you are united. You come in Christ together. And then you talk, you speak about what it is that's on your heart. Because until you speak about the things that are pressing on your heart, you cannot actually be real with one another. You cannot actually engage. So you speak. Just speak about whatever it is that's on your heart. Whatever is burdening you, just speak it to one another. Don't judge each other. Just speak it out. And then begin to pray for one another. Begin to pray together about the things God has called you and your family and as individuals called you into. Begin to pray into those things. Begin to agree together into those things. I think many of you do that, but I think God is saying to you, God is preparing us for a new season and He's saying we need, to, we need to actually up our game. And for some of you, maybe you've never done that. And so the challenge is going to be your pride to actually say, I'm going to put my pride aside, especially men, husbands, I'm going to put my pride aside, I'm going to say, tonight we're going to do this. Even if we start small, even if it's just 10 minutes, 15 minutes, we're going to do this. And it is and a profound power as well it has to change my motives, even for my own life, when I begin to do this, when I begin to come into agreement with someone else, with my spouse. So we need to, we need to live open-handed about the things that we want. In my own life, there's been so many times where I've thought that something will work out in this and this and this way, and it hasn't worked out that way. Yeah. Have you ever experienced that? Are there anyone... Yeah. A bit quiet this morning. Yeah. Yeah. 
Speak it. <laughs> Things don't work out exactly the way that you think it's going to work out. Yeah. And it begins causes me to doubt. What is God doing? What is God saying? But then God comes back to my motives. Comes back to my heart. And challenges my heart and says, what's really going on in your heart? What is really in your heart? And God begins to speak into my heart. There's a parallel passage to this passage in James. We don't have time this morning to go into that passage because it's so involved. It's Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7, I'm going to read you a few verses from Romans chapter 7. Just a few. Just to touch on this. Because Paul speaks about his own experience of this in Romans chapter 7. Of being double-minded at times. I want to just read you a few verses. Romans chapter 7 verse 21. Then I find then the principle that evil is present in me for the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war with the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I, with my mind, am serving the law of God, and on the other hand, with my flesh, am serving the law of sin. Now, there's so much debate about what is Paul speaking about here. Is he talking about a pre-Paul, pre-salvation Paul, and all those things? I believe Paul is speaking in the present tense about himself personally. Because, and there's many reasons why I believe this, and we, that's why, so we don't have time to look at the scripture. But the reason I believe that is, as Paul would have given this letter to the church in Rome... It would have been read out to them exactly in this way. They would have read it that here is the great Apostle Paul and he's talking about his own struggles in this open way. He's talking about a reality that there are times when he wants to do the, the good that God has called him to do, but he doesn't do it. Can you imagine the churches in Rome, and there were many churches in Rome, they were quite divided. Can you imagine them listening to this letter being read and all of the great things the great Apostle Paul has said up to this point and some of them would have said, well, Paul, you are sort of very low on the law. You don't really emphasize the law much. We need a little bit of more law in your life. And then Paul comes and speaks like this and he says, you know what? I find that there's a reality. That sometimes in my life, I'm double-minded. Sometimes in my life, I really want to do the things of God, but then I find myself doing something else. And he, he, he speaks personally about this reality. I think in the church, in Rome, when they read this letter and they got to Romans chapter 7, I think there were some people in the church, especially in the Jewish section of the church, who would have gasped. How can he say this? Because the point that Paul was making is exactly to answer this question. Some people were saying, Paul, you don't have enough law in your life. And so what is Paul's argument against that? It's not to say, well, let me introduce some law. He shows them that actually, to get saved, it's apart from the law. And to be sanctified is apart from the law. It's only by faith, by the Spirit of God, and by the grace of God Amen. that you can be changed. I cannot come this morning and think, okay, so I'm reading all these things, and so now I need to somehow apply more law to my life, and then maybe I can get it right at some point. Because I want to ask you this question. Maybe you are not struggling with any major sins this morning. So you might be one of those 
um, self-righteous people, I'm not saying you are, but maybe you are, who would have gasped at Paul and said, hey, Paul, how can you say this? How can you say that you are double-minded? But what Paul is actually speaking about is a reality of an understanding of our, our inner wrestle with sin that only becomes apparent the closer we walk with Jesus. The closer we walk with Jesus and we really want to obey and honor Jesus, the more aware we become of how truly sinful this body is that I still have to drag along with me. And sometimes I've got to kick it to get it to do what I want. And so at the end he says, well, thank God that one day Jesus will set me free from this body when he returns. And this is not going to be my, my forever. But the reason why we sometimes think, well, maybe Paul is, is speaking here about some pre-Christian condition is because we don't really, we're not always aware really of how deep our sin goes. So I want to give you a little test this morning. Who of you this morning, getting ready for church or in the car on the way here, um, experienced a bit of um, broken unity with your spouse or children as you were trying to get ready? Any of you experienced a bit of that this morning? Yeah, there we go. Some honest people, some honest people there. So you lost that battle this morning. Some of us lost that battle. I'm putting my hand up. Who of you maybe, you, you didn't lose that battle. You were fine. You were good. You were pumped. You're coming to church. But maybe in worship this morning, there was a time during worship this morning. Now, you know, don't get shocked when I say this. But there was a time during worship this morning when your attention was not fully on Jesus and glorifying Him. But your attention was on yourself and about something that's in you and what you want and what you're thinking about. Who of you felt, fell at that hurdle this morning? Yeah. Maybe you didn't fall at that hurdle. Maybe you made it all the way through. It was one of those worship times where it was just all Jesus. But then when Tony started to talk about offering, then you lost it at that point. <laughs> Maybe when Tony started to speak about offering, you were thinking to yourself, I should give more. Who thought that? You don't have to put your hand up. <laughs> I should get more. Do you know what that's called? It's called dead works. Yeah. It's sin. Yeah. Maybe when Tony was speaking about offering, you were thinking, you were thinking to yourself, um, if I give, how am I going to have enough? That's fear and doubt. Yeah. That's not faith. Yeah. That's sin. Yeah. Maybe you thought, well, look at me. Look at how much I give. In yourself. No one saw it, but inside here you thought, I give a lot. Pride. What Paul is expressing is the reality that we are so susceptible to becoming double-minded in any area of our walk with God. And we need to be so conscious all the time of how susceptible we are. Because especially as we gather as a church, if I'm not open-handed with what it is that I think is the right way, I will potentially push people in the wrong direction. And the Spirit and the presence of God can be hindered and halted in one moment of me just sort of pushing my own thing. We need to be so sensitive to what God is saying and the Spirit of God is speaking to us. Let's run through the others quickly. Check your allegiance. Whoever therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When sin, any form of sin begins to take root in our lives, we begin to grow an allegiance to something other than God. We grow an allegiance in our heart to something or someone other than God. 
And God calls that friendship with the world. He says, if you want to be a friend with the world, you cannot be in perfect intimacy with God. And in fact, it actually, it actually hurts God's heart because He sees it as adultery. If my heart is lured away by a worldly way of doing things. Yeah. Now that can be any worldly way. It can be the worldly way of lust. It can be the worldly way of of pride, it can be the worldly way of wealth, it can be all these different things that lure us away to say, I'm going to live in this particular area of my life, my allegiance is going to be towards money. Paul, I mean, James addresses that in his book. It can be as it is in this case, it can be about relationships with one another. And I can say, in this thing, with, within my church, within my community, within my family, within my marriage, it's going to be my way or the highway. I want to say to many men, and I can speak to the men because I'm a man. I want to say to you, the way that you think that you should rule over your wife is demonic. It's not from God. People have taught you from the scripture incorrectly that you are called to rule over your wife. It is a lie. You are not called to rule over your wife. You are called to be in unity with one another, just as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in unity with one another. You are called to serve one another. And if you choose to take that path, of trying to rule over, you're going to come into direct opposition with God yes. in the things of God. We need to love one another. We cannot in our relationships seek another way. We cannot obey the way of the world. Amen. Amen. And then the answer to it, humbly seek after Jesus. Look at what he says. Jumping back and forth again. Look at what James says as the answer. To all of this. It says, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Humble yourself. Humbly seek Jesus. It's the only answer. Now Paul was saying to the Galatian church where they thought that they had reached a higher level. He says, how did you come to faith in Christ? Was it by doing good things? Or was it by receiving with faith the word that God had spoken over you? And it's exactly the same thing. How are we going to be sanctified as a church to remain in step with God? It's not by any other means, but by humbling ourselves before God. Humbly coming before God and seeking Jesus. I think that when I read Romans chapter 7, where Paul talks about his own struggle of this, I think the reason Paul wrote that in that way was to expose those who would be self-righteous and to be proud. Because the moment they point the finger at Paul and saying, Ah, look, the Apostle Paul isn't so great after all. The moment they do that, they actually expose their own self-righteousness. Because what Paul was doing to the church is he was demonstrating what it means to be humble. He was humbling himself before them and saying, you know what, church? This is the reality of my life, is that I often struggle with being double-minded. I often have this wrestle within me. The enemy comes and plants seeds, and I accept those seeds, and I believe them, and I walk in a different direction. And then I have to check my mind and my thinking about what it is that I believe about God and about who He's called me and His purposes and His goodness. And if we're not open about these things, we won't find freedom. I loved what Caleb and Christian did this morning. 
And they spoke about men just coming together just to speak about life. To be open with one another. To be real with one another. To humble ourselves before God. To seek Jesus. And, and sometimes if we cannot find freedom, we really do need to humble ourselves before other people. And seek help from them. And say to them, this is where, in my mind, I have this wrestle, this struggle in my mind that I cannot get past. Can someone help me with this? Can you pray with me to help me find freedom from this? And we can do it together. And there's an answer for it. Verse 6. I just jumped over verse 6. Let's just read verse 6 together. It says, But He gives greater grace. He gives greater grace. God's grace is always available. There is always grace. There is always grace. Turn with me in your Bibles. Last verse we're going to look at. Romans chapter 5. So Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Paul is describing the experience of what Christ has done for us and how that works out in our lives. And verse 17 is actually, Romans 5, verse 17 is the main verse of Romans chapter 5 from verse 12 to 21. It's the center verse. I believe this section is written in what you call a chiasm. So in Greek writing, they often wrote in chiasm, which is different. Now, when we write, we write a, uh, introduction, body, conclusion. Um, chiasm is different in that you write your introductory points are your first point and your last point. And then you have your second point and your third point, and your fourth point and your fifth point, and then your middle point is your main point. When you read Romans chapter 5, this verse is the middle point of the, po- of the whole argument that Paul is making about what has happened from... From what happened with Adam, how we were sold into slavery, into sin, that we inherit this sinful nature that is in us, which we carry along, we drag this nature along. Even though I am set free in Christ, the reality is I still have this sinful nature, this body, this flesh, that I keep dragging along with me, and every now and then I've got to beat it and kick it and try and coerce it into joining me in what Christ wants for me. And this constant wrestle that I have with this reality, and he comes to verse 17 to make this conclusion. To show us where do we stand in regards to all of this. And he says in verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. God wants you to reign in your life. He does not want you to be defeated. He does not want you this morning to think about all the ways in which you have been double-minded and and all the ways in which you have struggled with things that plague your thinking and plague your life and think, well, I will never get to where God wants me because I've always had this reality that I keep dragging along with me. After all of that is said and done, Paul wants us to know that God has given us abundant grace. Just as James said, but He gives greater grace. Greater than what? Greater than what? Greater than your sin. Greater than your struggle. Greater than how big your problem is. You might be sitting there saying, well, I've had this problem for 40 years. God's grace is greater than that. Greater than the time frame that you're in. 
greater than all the opposition you face, greater than all of the enemy schemes against you to hinder you and to destroy you and to stop God from fulfilling His purpose in your life, God's grace is greater than that. That when Jesus died on the cross, as it says here in Romans 17, He gave this abundant grace. Abundant grace, so it will cover everything. All of your sin, all of your weakness. All of it. I want you to know this morning, that when God looks at you, He sees everything. There's no part of you that's hidden to Him. You can't pretend that you're somehow better than what you are. You can pretend to me, I can pretend to you, we sometimes do that. We shouldn't, but we sometimes do. But you can't pretend to God. God sees it all. And He says to you this morning, Come and humble yourself before me, because I have grace for your weakness. I have grace for your weakness. And if we do not give up on this road, if we do not say at one point, I just can't do it anymore, because maybe some of you have felt so guilty about your double-mindedness that you've even thought about suicide. There's a great theological writer, a great man of God called J.I. Packer. He was in a, in a church setting which was so full of law that he was at the point that he was about to kill himself because he was aware of this reality that he was dragging the sin with him. It was only when God liberated him to see that there is actually grace. There is actually grace above all of his weakness. That that grace did not mean that he can say, well, I'm just going to sin now. That grace is what brought him into relationship with God and with each other so that he could get freedom in the areas that God wanted him freedom in. So that he could lay hold of the things God has for his life. Some of you this morning might even be considering suicide because your burden of sin and guilt is so great. And this morning Jesus is saying to you, there is grace for you. There is grace for you. For all of your weakness, for all of your struggle, for all of your sin, He has given greater grace so that every one of us who are in Christ will reign in this life. Will reign in this life. That's God's purpose for you, is to reign. Not to be defeated, not to be ashamed, not to feel guilty. He wants you to reign. He wants you to get up. From where you have fallen, every single time you fall, he says, get up. Don't, sit, don't settle into a mindset. Get up. Out of that place. Come back to me. Come and run to me. Come and say you're sorry. Come and bring your confession to me. Come and receive grace from me. And get up and walk. And continue to, on the path of what God has for your life. Let's stand together as we pray this morning. We're going to go into a time of communion around this bread and this juice. And this bread and juice, there's nothing magical about it. I don't know. I didn't see Errol praying any special prayers over it. It's just bread. It's just juice. But Jesus said that when we do this, we proclaim His death. We remember and we proclaim His death. And what it is that we're remembering and what it is that we're proclaiming is that Jesus gave His body for your body. He took your place. So that all the sin and the guilt and the shame that you should feel right now for the things you have done, Jesus is saying, come and lay it at my feet. I will take it all away. All of it. And it's a symbol of His blood. He said, when He shed His blood, He covered all of your sin. The sin of the past, the sin of the present, and the sin of the future. He's covered it all. And He's calling you back into relationship. 
He's saying to us this morning, before we come and eat this bread or drink this, this um, juice this morning, the one thing we cannot do is come here with a double mind. The one thing we cannot do is come here and still have a mindset that I'm just going to carry on. It doesn't matter what your struggle or your wrestle is. All you need to do is say, Lord Jesus, this morning I want to be different and I want to walk in a different way. I want to come before you. I want to humble myself before you so that as I remember what you've done for me, I walk out of these doors different from when I came in. Some of you are struggling with thinking around your finances. Some of you are struggling with thinking around your sexuality. Some of you are struggling with thinking around your marriage, relationships. God wants to settle those things in your mind. Bring it before Him. Bring it before Him this morning. Don't come and partake still carrying in your mind this wrestle. Come and lay it before Jesus. Come and lay it before Him. So Jesus on that night, He took the bread and He... He broke it and He said, this is my body that's given for us. And He took that cup and He blessed it. And so as we do that, I'm going to pray for the bread and for the, the juice. And then you're going to come in your own time. And come and partake um, together in your own time of the bread and of the juice. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we just thank You this morning again that we can come humbly before You. Lord Jesus, you see all of us. You see every part of us. You see all of our weakness, all of our failures, all of our transgressions. And Lord, we bring them before you. We receive from you grace again. We receive from you grace. Lord, and I pray this morning that we would know this is not a cheap grace. But this is a grace that will lead us into freedom. Into freedom to walk a greater sanctity with you, a greater holiness with you. Lord Jesus, we receive your blood that was shed for us to cover our sins. And we thank you for that this morning. We worship you and we thank you.